who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness of contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth, its hard truth, truth that bites, truth that convicts. And now we pray for your spirit to give us hearts to receive it well, to receive it with faith and submission. We thank you, Lord, and we pray that you be glorified in the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If the Lord Jesus Christ was physically on earth today, he wouldn't be riding on a donkey. He'd be in an airplane flying all over the world. Those are the words recently spoken by a prosperity gospel preacher from Louisiana. He was making an appeal to his followers to help him raise $54 million to buy him a private jet. And the thing is, he already had three of them. He wants this fourth one because it has better fuel economy, since he's obviously so thrifty and, and frugal. Sadly, this man is just one of many prosperity preachers who are peddling a false gospel that offers false promises. In case you're not aware of what it is, prosperity theology essentially boils down to the idea that God promises to reward faithfulness with material prosperity. And so the more you trust him, the more you put your faith in him, the more you should expect to receive health, wealth, and happiness in life. And giving financially to the ministry of this or that prosperity preacher is your way of, 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 of investment. It's portrayed as you investing in the kingdom. And so they often exhort people to, quote-unquote, plant a seed by which they mean give a donation to their ministry, and then you just watch that seed money grow and come back to you in the form of abundance. So if you want to be debt-free, you want that promotion, you want to fix that broken marriage, you want to be healthy and strong again, then you've got to have faith. And according to these teachers, you show that faith by giving generously to this or that ministry. That kind of prosperity theology Trying to pass for Christianity is just in the air we breathe, especially here in Houston. Sadly, I think it's one of our biggest global exports. Prosperity theology, much of it originating from our very own city, has encircled the globe. There are millions of people around the world drinking up this kind of teaching through weekly television broadcasts and podcasts. It's such a popular message for a society that has been consumed by consumerism. It plays really well 
into the, the, the dreams and the aspirations of modern people like us. But as we see this morning from our passage, it, it appears that prosperity theology is not a modern invention. It's apparently an ancient teaching that's found in the ancient church. It looks like godliness has been treated as a means of gain for centuries. In 1 Timothy, Paul is writing to the city of Ephesus, specifically he's writing to Timothy, whom he put in charge. And if you've read before the book of Acts, you'll remember that it was in this city, it was in Ephesus, in Acts chapter 19, that Paul faced great opposition from the silversmiths and the artisans of the city who were making a profit selling silver shrines of Artemis. The great temple of Artemis was located here in the city of Ephesus, and so there was an entire economy built around the cult worship of this goddess in Ephesus. Godliness, religion, worship, it was a sure means of gain. And so in the same city, in a similar religious atmosphere, there were individuals now in the church of Ephesus with the same idea, thinking godliness is a means of gain, that is, a means of material gain, of worldly prosperity. Now, church, you know, I, I realize that none of you would take me seriously if I asked you to buy me a jet. Like, even just one with, like, a propeller I had to crank. Now, you, I, I doubt you would get that for me. And... You know, I understand none of you would be fooled into thinking that you would be materially blessed if you gave a donation. I know you're not susceptible to shameless, overt prosperity teaching. And so I think it's easy for a church like ours to you know, stand at a distance and to condemn these teachers and their followers as flagrant examples of greed. You know, we can just kind of throw stones from a distance and just kind of pat ourselves on the back that at least we're not like those people. But here, that's where I think we need to take a hard look at Scripture. I mean, just be honest with yourself. Can you see a reflection of yourself in this morning's passage? The truth is, the truth is, we can detest prosperity theology as a teaching while at the same time indulging in the same love of money behind that kind of teaching. There are softer, subtler forms of prosperity theology that we just might be susceptible to. And so as we look at this morning's passage, let's let it take a hard look at us. Let the scriptures examine you. When we entered into chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, Paul had started shifting focus to different groups in the church. First, he talked to the widows, and then he talked about the elders, and then slaves. And now here in chapter 6, he's talking about false teachers in the church. And Paul describes them as those who have deviated from sound doctrine. They've divided the church, and they're being driven by a love of money. And so as we break this passage down, I'm going to do so in three sections. If you want to follow along, you look in your bulletin, you'll find an outline. I've got three sections for us. First, we're going to consider the characteristics of the purveyors of prosperity theology. Second, we're going to look at the damage that can be done by prosperity theology. And third, we'll see the antidote, the cure to prosperity theology. 
So we start with a look at the characteristics of these purveyors of prosperity theology described for us in verses 3 to 5. And so have your Bible in front of you, follow along with me, and hopefully as we study their characteristics, it's going to help us to identify any contemporary teachers that are cut from the same cloth. And so start with me in verse 3. Look there with me. Verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Let's stop there. So Paul is urging Timothy to keep a close watch on the teaching that takes place in the church, and he tells him to look out for anyone who teaches a different doctrine. That's a Greek word we saw earlier back in chapter 1, I think verse 10. It's the same Greek word, hetero didaskaleo. Hetero, different, didaskaleo, teaching. Hetero, teaching, different teaching. Now, different compared to what exactly? What, what does the text say? Look at the text. Different compared to the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Now, now that could be referring to words actually spoken by Jesus. Perhaps he's referring to a collection of sayings that had been preserved up to this point. But more likely, that phrase, the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, is probably referring to sound words or sound instruction about our Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has accomplished for us in his incarnation and his death and resurrection. And so we're not just talking about the red letters of the Bible. We are talking here generally about the gospel. We're talking about the good news of Christianity that pronounces a gracious offer of divine pardon to sinners like us, those who have spurned God's goodness, those who have turned away and gone our own way. The God who owes us nothing, the one who we owe everything but owes us nothing but the demands of justice which call for our destruction, this God sent and sacrificed his own beloved son that whosoever turns from their own way and returns to the Father in faith will be reconciled to him and to one another in one body that we call the church. These are the sound words of the gospel about our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you disagree with them, if you teach contrary to them, Paul is saying you are dealing with a different doctrine. You are dealing with a different religion. Christianity is not something that we can just define, define for ourselves. Christianity is a religion that is centered on and defined by a proclamation by a pronouncement about our Lord Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he has accomplished for us and for our salvation. That is Christianity. Now, in the same verse, Paul also says that these false teachers were teaching doctrine that is different compared to the teaching that accords with godliness. Think about that, that phrase, teaching, the teaching, that accords with godliness. So it seems 
that by this time there was a standard body of apostolic teaching that was being passed down first from our Lord Jesus Christ to, to his apostles, and now this teaching was being entrusted to faithful men who were able to teach others also. And this, this body of teaching, it says, accords with godliness. That means those two things correlate. The teaching and godliness. You should be able to draw a straight line between godly, sound doctrine and sound, godly lives. Godly, sound doctrine, straight line, sound, godly lives. You should, you should be able to look at the soundness of a teacher's life in order to determine the soundness of his or her doctrine. In other words, Behavior is a good barometer of belief. Behavior is a good barometer of your true beliefs. And that's why Paul, in verses 4 to 5, he goes on to describe the behavior, the lives of these false teachers and their followers to reinforce his point that their doctrine is false. Their doctrine is different from sound Doctrine. So look at verse 4 with me. Verse 4, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, we don't know the identity of the false teacher or false teachers that Paul has in mind. It could be, it could be Hymenaeus and Alexander, uh, th those two guys that he called out earlier in chapter 1, verse 20. It could be them, but we don't know exactly. Regardless, here he says, the false teacher is conceited and a know-nothing. I think that's really an apt description. Because false teachers, false teachers must be puffed up with conceit in order to think that they can improve on the words of Scripture, that they can improve on the wisdom of the Bible, on the teaching of the apostles. And so they, they try to retool and redefine doctrine, but what they are dishing out, Paul says, is un unhealthy. It's not feeding and building up the church. It's, it's leading to the church's sickness and, and demise. It, the, the, the teaching that they're dishing out is just feeding, as he puts it here in verse 4. Look there. It, it's feeding an unhealthy craving that they have, an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels. I, I hope you notice here that Paul keeps using this metaphor of bodily health. Maybe you didn't notice it earlier, but when he mentions the word sound words or sound doctrine, as he uses earlier in, in, the, in the letter, that word sound literally means healthy. Healthy words, healthy doctrine. The word hygiene that we have in English is derived from this very Greek word. So think about it. If, if you keep taking in unhealthy foods, that's going to lead to an unhealthy life. So a steady diet of airy, fluffy cotton candy, yeah, it's going to taste great. Right? I mean, it will go down easy. Cotton candy will melt in your mouth. 
but cotton candy has no nutritional value, and if that's all you're ingesting, it will lead to health complications and eventually will kill you. In the same way, all the false teaching that's floating around is like cotton candy. It lacks substance. It's not filled with the glory of God, the the weightiness of God. And that's the reason false teaching tastes so sweet to us, because God's glory is not in it. Instead, it's human glory. It's self-glory. It just goes down easy for people when you tell them that God is not that mad and you're not that bad. No one is going to choke on teaching that says, hey, you just do your part, you try your best, and God will understand. He'll accept you no matter what. People will flock together under any kind of teaching that is going to promote and promise material blessings of health, wealth, and happiness. But, friends, if you redefine God's holiness, if you redefine sin, you redefine judgment, you redefine the cross, you redefine conversion, you redefine obedience and godliness, now you have concocted a different set of doctrines, a different religion altogether, one that tastes sweet and goes down easy, but will kill you in the end. You know, I know our church is growing a reputation for being very theological, you know, for wanting our theology to be clear and to be accurate. But I hope you understand that we care about those things, that that we are so against false teaching, not just because it's inaccurate, but because it's sickly. We're not just concerned with theological correctness. We are concerned with the spiritual harm that unsound doctrine causes to the body that is the body of Christ, to you. False teaching, especially the kind that imagines godliness as a means of gain, that kind of false teaching is unhealthy. It's sickly. It might even kill you. So let's dig further into this idea. Let's dig further into this in our second point. Here in our second point, we're going to consider the damage of prosperity theology. And so just think about this with me, all right? Just just think about how this works. If you imagine godliness is a means of gain, of some sort of material earthly gain, you will inevitably create division in distrust between the haves and the have-nots within the same church, between those enjoying God's blessing of prosperity and those who are still waiting. Why did you not receive the healing? Why are you still in debt? Why didn't you get that job? Why didn't you get into that school? Did you not trust God enough? Did you not have enough faith in his promises? I mean, do you just see the burden that this kind of teaching places upon people? Now, I I admit, initially, it's attractive to tell people that the onus is on you to suggest that you have control over your fate. In all the various forms of prosperity theology, there's this name-it-claim-it kind of aspect to this teaching where power is assigned to to positive thinking, power is assigned to your attitude, or to to even the words you use, the words you speak. Listen to, listen to arguably the most popular prosperity teacher today in what he writes in one of his most 
popular best-selling books. Friend, there is a miracle in your mouth. If you want to change your world, start by changing your words. If you'll learn how to speak the right words and keep the right attitude, God will turn that situation around. In another book, in the same vein, he writes this, words have creative power. When you say of the Lord, you are healthy, you are whole, you are free, you are blessed, you are prosperous, when you say it, God has promised he will do it. You name it, and you claim it as yours by faith. That's what's being taught. And you see how this places such a heavy burden on the individual. Because it all hinges on you and your attitude and your words. If you do experience prosperity, well then it's just going to puff up your conceit. But if you face disappointment, if it's apparently not your time, and you're not living your best life now, then your faith is utterly shaken. By convincing you that your words determine your destiny, prosperity teachers are doing you great harm, whether the result of their teaching is going to fill you with pride or fill you with despair. It's hurting you. It's harming you. By feeding people's desires for riches, by, by tapping into that craving we have for money, these teachers are leading individuals off a cliff, leading them right into temptation, right into the snares of the devil, right into ruin and destruction. I have read too many stories. I have heard too many testimonies of people's family and friends who have wandered away from the faith when the healing never came when the finances didn't improve, when the marriage stayed broken. If you've convinced someone to trust God, not for who he is and what he has done for us in the gospel, but to trust him for what he can do to improve or to enhance your life, then don't be surprised if they stop trusting God when the prosperity runs dry or if it never comes. Paul saw this coming. He knew the damage of prosperity theology. He wrote about it for us in verses 9 and 10. Look in verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pain. Friends, this is the kind of damage that prosperity theology can inflict on individuals, on families, on whole churches. And friends, we're all susceptible. But don't fool yourself into thinking that you are immune to these things. I think one of the problems in preaching this kind of message is that it might sound like I'm preaching to the choir, right? I mean, I know most of you have no interest in reading the books of prosperity teachers or to watch their television broadcasts broadcast, or to, to podcast their sermons. So you might think this message has really little to do with you and has to do with those other people in those other churches. But I would argue that because we live in a highly consumeristic culture and because 
let's face it, the majority of us are well off. There are strands of soft prosperity theology that may have infiltrated our own faith and practice without us even realizing it. Look back at verse 9. Look there. Look at verse 9, because we have to be so nuanced. We have, to, we have to speak carefully here. So notice that Paul doesn't say it's wrong to be rich. It's not bad to have money, but he does say it's wrong to desire to be rich. It's wrong to love money. I think verse 10 is often misquoted. We hear people say, money is the root of all evil. But that's not what it says, right? That's not what Paul wrote. Money itself is not the problem. It's the love of it. And so maybe you're rich because of your parents. You inherited it. Maybe you have lots of money because you, you study hard, you work hard, and you excel in a profession that commands a high salary. So being in the possession of money, even lots of it, is a morally neutral thing. Morality only kicks into the equation when you are thinking about what to do with that money. Or when we consider your attitude towards that money, whether you're trying to get rich or you're trying to stay rich. That's when morality is kicking into the equation. And so I'll say it again. It's not a sin to be rich. I know many of you have done well in your career, and you shouldn't feel guilty for the simple fact of having a lot of money. But before you quickly assuage any feelings of guilt, let me just reinforce Paul's whole point here. Because according to verses 9 and 10, it is a sin to desire your riches and to love your money, especially to the point that you're unwilling to give it away or to invest it for the glory of God and the good of others. I want you to take a good, hard look at verses 9 and 10. And I don't think any of us can stare at these verses and not see some reflection of ourselves. Yeah, maybe we don't desire money just for the pure pleasure of it. Like, we don't really care for private jets. But we do desire money for the status it gives us or for the safety and security it provides. With those desires, we can still very well fall into temptation and sin, even, even if it's just the sin of discontentment. That sense of not having enough of not getting what we think we deserve. We're discontented. But you know, accumulating more money and more stuff will never cure a discontented heart. You just have to look at the richest people in society. Look at their stories. Look at how unhappy they still are. King Solomon, who was one of the richest men of the ancient Near East, he once wrote in a book, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, he wrote this out of his own life experience. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. It's vanity, he says, to chase after riches thinking it's going to satisfy you. Take it from someone who had it all. He had it all. Everything you are aspiring for, he had it, and he says it's not going to satisfy. 
I realize there are also many of you here who are still in school. You're at the, maybe you're at the start of your career, and so, yeah, you're, you're not rich. You don't have a lot of money. But the question for you is, do you desire it? Do you want to be rich? I mean, is it a goal of yours to get a high-paying job and make lots of money? And I think this is, this is exactly where many of us have fallen victims to a soft, subtle form of prosperity theology. Because why is it? Why is it that we consider a desire to be rich, to make a lot of money as fairly harmless, as pretty normal? I mean, we just tell ourselves, that's just how people are raised to think. That's how we were raised to think. You, you study hard, you get a good job, you make a lot of money, you eventually exceed the wealth and success of your parents, and then you pass on that opportunity to your children. But having read Paul's warning, why would anyone desire to be rich? Unless we just don't believe him. I mean, maybe we just don't take him seriously, at least in this particular verse. I mean, just look at verse 9 again. Please keep your eyes on verse 9, and let me just read this to you slowly. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now, don't get me wrong here. I, I, I'm not trying to turn poverty into a virtue. I mean, we're not suggesting that, that godliness comes easier to the poor. Poverty has its own set of snares and temptations. So Paul's not advocating for poverty instead of wealth. What he's doing is he's advocating for contentment instead of covetousness. Listen to Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 to 9. This is a prayer to God. This is a prayer I believe we should all be praying. It says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. I think that's what we should be praying. Lord, please give what is needful for me. I don't desire to be poor, lest I be tempted to sinfully take matters into my own hands. I might steal, I might cut corners, I might hurt other people, and I will then profane your name. But neither do I desire to be rich, lest I be tempted to sinfully take matters into my own hands and no longer trust God. I'll feel self-sufficient. I'll feel like I have the means to handle my own problems. Eventually, I'll say, or I'll just think to myself, who is the Lord? Who really needs him? I can handle it. I've got this. And that's why, that's why none of us should want to be rich. If financial gain is what you so desire, friends, it won't lead you to godliness. It will lead you towards a godless self-sufficiency. Now again, for any of us who are actually rich, it doesn't mean you have to give it all away. Though it's not beyond Jesus to ask. He has asked that before. 
But what not desiring to be rich would mean for you is that you must not fall in love with the money that you have or with the comfort and security that it provides you. Use money. Steward money. Give money. But never, ever fall in love with it. It's not wrong to have money in your hands. Even if you have lots of it, it's only wrong when you grip it tight so that you refuse to give it to the glory of God or for the good of others in your life. So friends, please beware of the love of money. It is a root of all kinds of evil. I mean, just think with me of all the various societal evils in our day. Fraud, embezzlement, theft, robbery, murder, drug trafficking, human trafficking, pornography, exploitation. You can just you tie all of that to the love of money. And let's not forget all the evils in our own hearts. Selfishness, jealousy, envy, hatred, betrayal. You can trace all of those evils also back to the love of money. We need a cure here. We need an antidote. And this is our third and final point. But to find the cure, to find the antidote, we have to understand, friends, that the love of money is not merely a spending problem. It's a contentment problem. That's how Paul explains it for us in verses 6 to 8. If you recall in verse 5, he just says that these false teachers imagine that godliness is a means of gain. And Paul, he rhetorically kind of turns it around on them and he says, yes, godliness is gain. Great gain, that is, provided you're talking about spiritual riches. If you're content with the material goods that God has given to you, then any desire for, 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 for gain is good and godly. Let's look at his argument in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing... With these, we will be content. So in verse 7, Paul is saying that contentment first comes from realizing that nothing that's yours is actually yours. Nothing that is yours is actually yours, whether it's money in your bank account, whether it's the home you live in, whether it's the car you drive, whether it's that smartphone you use all the time, whatever material possession you cherish, just remember you're only borrowing it. You get the privilege to use it and to enjoy it for a limited period of time, and then you die, and you can't take it with you. When the Lord allowed Satan to strip Job of all of his riches, of all the material things that he cherished in this world, Job chapter 1, verse 21, records Job as saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Contentment comes from realizing that everything belongs to the Lord. Whether he gives or takes away, the prerogative there belongs to the owner. And we, as stewards, can only say thank you, and blessed be your name.
Now, if you look at verse 8, verse 8, Paul says, if God graciously gives us food and clothing with these, we will be content. Now, commentators also note that that word clothing could also be translated as covering, which could also apply to a shelter, to a house. And so you can extend that. Uh, commentators will, will say you can extend this to Paul basically saying that with food, clothing, and shelter, you can experience contentment. John Stott helpfully points out for us, though, that Paul is not trying to define what he says is the maximum that is permitted to the believer, but the minimum that is compatible with contentment. And so it's not wrong to have and to enjoy more than those three things, but Paul is suggesting that what we typically assume is necessary in order to live a fulfilling, contented life is probably extraneous. You clearly don't need as much as you want. You know, I, 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 know it's, I know it's easier said than done. I know it's easy for me just to stand here and say, you don't need those things, just be content. But I know how easy it is to be discontented. I know how common it, common it is. It's so common, discontentment is so common that maybe we don't even feel very comfortable calling it a sin. Yeah, it's a poor attitude, but man, sin sounds just so strong. We think being discontent just means wishing you had more than you do. But I, I want to point out something here, something that Paul does here that demonstrates for us the spiritual significance and the seriousness of the sin of discontentment. Look with me back at verse 4, and notice in verse 4, how when Paul describes this false teacher who lacks contentment, notice the first thing he mentions in describing this teacher is his hubris, his pride, his conceit. And what that tells me is that the discontented man doesn't just lack happiness. He lacks humility. He thinks he deserves better than God has given him. He feels entitled to more. He is puffed up with conceit, and that is why he is discontent. And so, friends, what this means is that the antidote to the love of money, the antidote to prosperity theology is a contented heart. But if you want that contented heart, you need a humbled heart. You need to go back to the gospel. You need to remind yourself that you deserve nothing good from God. Nothing but his condemnation. Nothing but his just judgment. Nothing but his wrath against your sin. And yet out of sheer mercy, out of pure grace, he gave you his son, Jesus Christ, who died for your sins, who was raised for your justification, who richly, who richly blesses you with the Holy Spirit, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Humble yourself at the foot of the cross and realize the spiritual riches that you have in Christ. And thank God just thank him for every good gift that you enjoy. Godliness with this kind of contentment rooted in the gospel of Jesus is truly great gain. Father, do this work in our hearts.
humble our hearts by remembering who we are and what we deserve apart from Christ and as well who we now are and how much we have been blessed because we are in Christ. And with a heart of humility, give us hearts of contentment, satisfied with all that we have in Christ, satisfied with all that you have provided in our lives. With you, your son Jesus, with your spirit in us, we have enough. In Jesus' name, amen.